0: Giving our hearts to God in the way that he deserves, I think says it best for this morning. Giving our lives and our hearts and our minds over to Christ. It's a decision we make every morning. It is a decision that we wake up and sometimes we say to ourselves, what's my action here? What's What's my decision? Where do I go from here? What do I do? And we talked about that last week. In this series that we've been going through called Hustle and Hush, about the decisions that we make in our own flesh lived lives, our own flesh filled ways. We want to purge ourselves of that, remove ourselves from that. Because what awaits at the end, what we gain from all of that, is enormous. It's big. And those things that we sang about this morning, you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever you reign. We are image bearers to that life. We are witnesses to that life. And so as we continue in Romans 8, I want us to think this morning about the things that we receive, about the things that we get, about the things that we inherit, the things that are now called ours. And Paul walks us through that. And we'll pick up exactly where we left off last week. We'll go in order. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Now the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received This week, we want to talk about our inheritance. And when we think of the word inheritance, we think of something that we get when someone dies. You might inherit some land. You might inherit some money. You might inherit some weird sort of knickknacks that they have all over the house. What is this I don't know. Throw it away. Everyone gets something when they have someone that they love that passes away. We're talking about an inheritance that comes from knowing something or someone. So it might not be material. So you get material inheritance when someone passes away, but you're also inheriting something while that person is still alive. When your parents were still alive, when they were talking with you when they were going through, the, uh, through their lives and making decisions, their actions, you inherited those things. You imitate them to this day. That is your inheritance to bear their image of who they are. So this is not just a waiting till the end, but this is also we've gotten something from them that represents who they are, that reminds other people, oh, that reminds me of your dad when you do that. That reminds me of your mom when you do that. And these things we cannot escape. As much as we don't want to turn into our parents, we do. We can't outrun that. That's an inheritance, we've received that, that's a gift. And then there's also the inheritance we receive when they pass, something material, a possession of some kind. There are two different types of inheritance. And so keep that in mind as we're talking about that because we're going to talk about our future inheritance, but we're also going to talk about what comes with knowing Christ, what comes with living in and dwelling in the Spirit. Paul says we are no longer obligated to live according to the flesh because we live according to the flesh, and we die. We don't have anything left to give. But if we live according to the Spirit, you then actually do live. And see, that's the great reversal of what Jesus has come to say. That this participation in the Spirit, this participation in Christ, means that we no longer have to strive to live. We, never, we no longer have to work out all of this by ourselves. That actually we've died to the old self and therefore we can live. And what the world says is, no, we need you. You want yourself. You want to get more and more of you and this life. And if we seek after that life, if we seek after a life of the flesh, then we die. And this is the great reversal that Jesus has come to show us. That for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And this is maybe one of the most hopeful, one of the most blessed, one of the happiest verses, the good news of Christ is that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now this was, this was a, a concept completely foreign to the Old Testament Jews, that we were sons of of Abraham, of Isaac, of Joseph, all down the line. Sons of Moses in that tribe, and then all of the tribes, and then sons of David. And in fact, what was the prophecy that Jesus would be a son of David? You see, so the lines were very patriarchal. They were Who is your father? Who is your father? You are a child of that person. So what it meant to be a son was that you inherited that father's name, David, son of Jesse. And all through the line, you were a son of somebody. And then Jesus comes along and says, now you are a son of God. Well, they got to run him out of town for something like that because that's blasphemous, that's heresy. You can't be the son of God. We are not the children of God. That's only reserved for one person. We don't, we don't get to call ourselves that, do we? But Paul is here saying that we're no longer identified by our earthly father. We're no longer inheritance to the earth as it is. We are an inheritance to everything that God has said. That we become his child and therefore we have a name and we have an identity in God. God shows up and says, no longer are you David's son of Jesse, you are a child of God. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. We overlook how big that implication is. We overlook just what that is calling us to. To be led by the Spirit is to be the children of God. But that word led by the Spirit is better probably translated to being driven by the Spirit, to be animated by the Spirit. We need to recognize that the Spirit drives our lives. And when we don't let the Spirit drive, when we want to lead the Spirit, when we take a a passive role in our lives and we just think, well, this is it. I can just, again, get in the boat and be aimless because the Spirit is taking me. There is an active role that the Spirit takes in leading you. It's not a dog on a leash. It's the wind in a boat. And if we want to continue our metaphor, we need to see exactly where that boat is going. We need to steer it in a particular direction. And in the church that I grew up in, that direction was heaven. That when you believe in God, you get in the boat and the Spirit takes you and your direction is heaven. And heaven is the destination, and it's the end of the line, and every believer goes there. And that's what you do when you get in the boat, is you pick your course, and you head for heaven. But Paul's not saying that, is he? Paul's not saying that our inheritance is heaven, that our direction, that at the end of the road, when all of this is over, our inheritance is heaven. Heaven, Hmm. there is an enthusiasm in the Holy Spirit. There is an active influence. The Spirit leads when we allow it to lead. That's interesting, isn't it? That the Spirit can come alongside of us and we don't want it to lead. And so we take an active role in pushing that away. And saying, no, that's not what I want for my life. Holy Spirit, I'm looking for those answers come into my life and answer all of these unanswerable questions for me. The direction of my life, I'm I'm aimless. And then you hear and you hear and you hear and you hear and people are saying, I see this into your life and the prayers always come back this way and you're like, "Ah, that just doesn't sound like the Spirit. And so we wait and we wait because we are not allowing the Spirit to lead. And like we talked about last week, we haven't done away with the flesh. We haven't purged, but we've allowed the Spirit to lead and thereby that's what accomplishes that. The Spirit of flesh always comes back into our lives. We follow the body. And the only way that we purge that is if we allow the Spirit to gather to allow the spirit to drive. As we're participating in that sonship, this is what it means to be led by the spirit of God. There are huge implications for this. What does Paul say in verse 15? We are no longer enslaved by fear. Well, I feel afraid every day. I feel anxiety rising as I, Watch the news. Well, I just don't watch the news then. Well, that doesn't stop that, though. That's only a fix. My fear is still there. But Paul says that when we allow the Spirit to lead, when we call ourselves the children of God, we are no longer enslaved by fear. In fact, he goes so far to say, so that you don't live in fear again. That was your old life. Fear was your old life because you were so fixed on the end. If you follow all of the world's news and you follow it to its conclusion, you will find something very bad happening. And so we just stop following the world's news, but then we still have that in the back of our mind, like, what's gonna happen to me today? What's gonna happen to my family today? Where are we going on this journey? And so, all of a sudden now, we've put the fear of the flesh back in our bodies. And Paul says, let's not do that again. You are raised better than that. You now have this new life and this new spirit that's leading you, and don't become fearful people again. Oh, that's hard to do, though. That's almost an impossible task for us to do, right? Okay. Good. Good. Because God's taken us to a place of dependency where we need him to show up every single moment and say, God, I am so scared about what's happening in my life. I'm so scared about my health and my family's health and I'm so scared about a job opportunity and I'm so scared about driving on the road and I'm so scared about money. I want to hand it all over to you. I give this to you, God. I trust you with this. And then it no longer becomes us trying to beat our fear and say, well, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I just just can't get over it. I just can't do it anymore. Good. God's got you right where he wants you. God has placed you in that moment. He's placed you in that place to say to you, I know you can't do it. I've been telling you this. I sent a savior to help you do this. I've placed you in this moment to accept my inheritance and you still want to do it by yourself. Just turn it over to me. So being God's children means we are not enslaved to fear. It also means that we have this intimate relationship with God. We prayed about it. We read through it. We sang about it this morning. God is love and we love God and we have the ability to come closer to him. And the people could not look on Moses' face because he had been in the glory of God. And Moses himself had to veil his face so that they could not look at God. And now the veil has been torn away. Oh, that's what that means. It means that we can stand in the presence of God and not be shaken. We stand in his awe, in his presence, and we are moved to tears, to joy, to worship, And here's the funny thing about it, is that we think about this glorious day where we'll all be together as saints, worshiping Christ at His feet, on His throne. It's going to look like this. So why should we wait? Why shouldn't that day be today? Why shouldn't we praise God and worship Him and pray and read the Word and go through all of our lives, as if we're waiting to be at the the seat, to be at the throne, to be at the feet of Christ. Why are we living our lives as if we're waiting for that inheritance? Because as we become children of God, we know that we can approach the throne and we can and we do and we should. We should live our lives as though Christ is there, moving in the spirit with us, here in the room now, here in our lives with us as we move day to day. We say, boy, I can't wait to see your face. Moses saw your face and he had to cover it. But here we can stand in the presence of God and know that he has accepted us. That's what it means to be a a child of God an innocent child going to their father and their father opening his lap and saying, come to me, you do not need to be worried. And it means the same as the prodigal son. As the son goes away, he comes back to the father who was there running down the road waiting for him. This is the father as he opens his arms. This is what it means to be able to enter into the spirit of God, to enter into his presence in open arms that no matter how many mud pits we've eaten in, no matter how many inheritances we've thrown away, to be able to approach God as his son or daughter, that should light your world on fire. There should be nothing holding us back, and we forget this. We receive this spirit of adoption, and Paul says this, enabling us to cry, Abba, Father. Here's the great thing about Abba. And you know which one I'm talking about. Not the Swedish one, but the Aramaic Abba. This word is Aramaic. It's the common language. It's not high Falutin Greek like Paul is writing in. It's the language of the common people. In fact, he says Abba Holpater which is Abba, Father, which is Abba. I'm placing the name Abba next to the holiest of Greek, Chopater. to say these words are the same, that you no longer have to be distant. You no longer have to push him away, hopater. Oh, my dear Father, oh, how can I please you today? We welcome into his arms and we say, Daddy, I love you. Now, Abba is not a direct translation of daddy, but it is a familiar term. And in fact, it's so familiar, it's what Jesus calls his father. It's the name that Jesus used for his father in Mark, crying out Abba. And Paul says, hey, I heard Jesus call him this one time. My friends told me this, so I don't know, let's just call him Abba from now on. It's a closeness. It's a, I have a relationship with this man. I have a relationship with this unbelievable spirit and presence and love and grace. And how can I show that? How can I live that through my life? But we have an assurance of this. And these are some of the privileges that we have in his presence, that we gain a new identity as co-heirs. Now, this is an interesting part, because Paul comes to the conclusion of the opening of chapter 8. He's starting an argument, and then he's going to go into what this all means for us. And verse 17 is that transitional Phrase That transitional verse that takes us out of the arguments from 1 through 16, and then will put us in the rest of the chapter, 18 through 39. And he's looking here now at what it means to be in his presence, the privilege of doing that. And so understanding our role as co-heirs, he calls us heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, which makes me a little bit nervous. To be called co-anything with Christ puts me in a very peculiar position. To say that Christ and I are the same, even to use our names in the same sentence, is something that we're just not comfortable with. Now, he's not saying we are Christ. He's not saying we are Jesus. He's saying that we are inheriting what Jesus inherits that's scary to me that's a big thing that's a big thing for us to think about and to plan our lives around because when we think about being a christian when we think about being a believer when we think about coming into this family we don't think about that we don't think about the glory that christ received in that moment of his resurrection. We don't think about that becoming now the ability to share in that glory with Christ. Everything that was promised to Christ, we live in and through because of our sonship. He is the son of God. And we can call ourselves children of God as well. Because of that spirit, there are privileges, but there are responsibilities in that position. Because that's something big to take on. That's something big to dwell there and say, How are we receiving this? Am I living my life as though I am a co heir with Christ? Am I living my ways as if I believe? And again, we're talking about these two inheritances now and later. And now you already own the land by virtue of who you are as my son. And eventually you will actually receive the land because of everything that's already happened. This was a huge deal. And there's actually not a lot of understanding adoption in the New Testament and what that would include in Jewish laws. But when someone is adopted... In the Greek world, they are bestowed full family rights. When you become a son who is not your line, when you are adopted, you became full family. You have all the rights inherited by any of the other sons and daughters in that family. And this is the mind-blowing part of what Paul is preaching here. What he is teaching to the church in Rome, this should make us slobber on ourselves because we just don't understand it. How is it that we can have full familial rights and the kingdom of God? How is it that God has called us to this and the spirit has moved and Jesus has done what he has done? How do we get to share in that? God has brought us closer to him through his son and given us a spirit who says, let me lead you. Let's be active together in this world. Let's do the things that God has called us to do. And still we say, I'm just not worthy enough. It'll be great in heaven when I can just look around and see all those people and we'll worship God and that'll be that. We become co-heirs and this is a huge deal. This is for us an encouragement. And it's also kind of a bummer because how does Christ get glorified in his suffering. Paul says that Christ is glorified because he suffered. 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul writes this, just as we have an overflowing share of the Messiah's sufferings, you see, so that we have an overflowing share in comfort through the Messiah. we suffer and we are glorified, not because of who we are, Yeah, we're unworthy. I get it. I know that. And you're sitting there thinking, how can he say this? How can he say that I'm going to be co-heirs with Christ in the glory that is to come? How is it that we're inheriting that in our lives? I'm not saying it, though. Paul is saying it. Christ is saying it he's putting all these things together because he loves us so much. God loved his creation so much that he sent Jesus to do the thing that we couldn't do. And all he says is just have faith that he is who he says he is. Let the spirit live and reign in your life. And that'll cause you to inherit his glory. If indeed we share in his sufferings, Well, that's the part that troubles me, though. That's the part that gets me to wonder, well, what are these sufferings that are going to come my way? What are these things that I can't live up to? What are these fears? Am I supposed to have fear? Am I supposed to have anxiety? Because that sort of feels like the sufferings of this time. It's a suffering of the world. It's a suffering of us collectively together. It's not your individual pity party that you feel when something minor inconveniences you. The sufferings of this world are the world suffering. It's us looking out on creation and creation groaning back in response and saying, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? This is what we suffer. We suffer because we know things are not as they should be. They are not the way that we want them to be. They're not the way that God has called us to do things. And yet we continue in our boat bound for glory. That will someday drop us off at the heaven's gates. And we'll let someone else deal with that. Just as we have an overflowing share of the Messiah's sufferings, we have an overflowing share in comfort through the Messiah. Our sufferings are partaken with Christ. He goes through it. We go through it with him. He is raised in glory. We are raised in glory. So, now how do you want to live? There is a prospect of the promised glory that not only are we raised in glory as believers, but there is that prospect of that promised glory, the future glory compared to present suffering. We need to understand the glory that awaits us. In earthly life, it is important that we share in the sufferings of Christ himself because of it, we are guaranteed a share of his risen glory. We are guaranteed in the destiny of Christ himself who is in the glorious presence of his Father. We are not made glorious by who we are. We are made glorious because of who Christ is. We are made glorious because we stand in the presence of glory. How could we stand in the presence of God and be anything but glorious? We think ourselves unworthy, and yet here I am standing in God's presence. Here I am dwelling among him. How am I not to call myself unworthy for that? The way to glorification or to share in God's glory is through suffering in this life. And so there is a hopeful anticipation that the inheritance of glory is coming. It is here, but it's also not here. It's a yes, but also a wait. It is a now and also a later. There is a balance between living in the present and hoping for future glory. It was once said of the musician Rich Mullins that he always lived his life as though he had one foot already in heaven. He understood that there was a present glory here. There was things to say and worship and pray and work on and do for the glory of God, but there was also a future inherited glory where one day all things will be made glorious for those who believe. Hmm, that's in chapter 8 of Romans also. So much of what Paul is building toward is to show us that there is no longer this old, sinful, flesh-driven life. Christ sets an example in enduring suffering before entering glory. Paul writes in Philippians 2, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. It's our task as children of God to emulate his faith and perseverance in our journey. There's no other way around it, that we have to endure and we have to endure the sufferings of this world, that we look around and we, sh- we see that things are broken, things aren't the way they should be, things are never going to be glorious yet. But how do we show glory? How do we live out that message? We let the Spirit take us there.